Welcome to Hear the Big Picture. We're here for the second of our climate change podcasts. What's that got to do with climate change? So we're getting together to discuss the surprising variety of human activities that influence climate change. In our first podcast, we talked about the consequences of climate change. And now we're going to talk about causes and mitigation. Let's begin with a quick recap of our previous podcast, which we called, It's Not Just About Feeling the Heat. In that podcast, we address the question that some people ask, well, what's so bad about getting a little warmer? Yes, that's a very good question. And we said that the point is that climate change isn't just a matter of getting a little warmer. We're already seeing extreme weather events of all kinds more frequently than in the past. For example, there are now more frequent droughts and wildfires in the western U.S. We're seeing more frequent and more ferocious hurricanes in the Caribbean and the South Atlantic, and numerous places throughout the world have experienced both droughts and dangerous flooding more commonly than ever before. Asia has been particularly hard hit with floods in many locations. These terrible natural disasters threaten to make millions of people homeless worldwide. Despite these serious issues, I've read that some people are a little cavalier about solving the climate change problem because they think we can always find technology solutions. I can understand this outlook because when you think about it, human beings have overcome so many obstacles throughout history. That is true, but here's the problem with that. You hear all this stuff in the media about how we have to keep the warming below 2 degrees centigrade. It's not just because climate change will stop happening once we warm up by two degrees. It's actually just the opposite. Scientists are afraid that once we get to about that threshold, there might be a snowball effect, and we may not be able to adapt, and certainly not without enormous cost. Even if everybody stopped burning fossil fuels tomorrow, the carbon dioxide we've already emitted would stick around and continue to warm the planet for multiple generations. So that means we can expect more disasters in the future, and that's not even to mention damage to our ecology and loss of farmland. Since we haven't stopped burning fossil fuels yet, let's talk about what might be feasible that would help, even if it doesn't solve the problem completely. Well, actually, I've been doing a lot of research to try and understand what solutions scientists are considering. They've known about and observed climate change since the 1950s, so enough time has passed that some of our research has actually started bearing fruit. So tell me, I'm more than ready for some good news. What are some things the human race can do to reduce this problem? Well, of course, we can figure out how to save energy and use more renewable fuels like wind and solar. We can save energy by driving less, and we can plant more trees. These are really first priorities, and everybody's heard enough about all of that. But now we want to expand on this by talking about some measures you may not have heard much about yet. Go ahead. Tell me about some of them. Well, for one, a couple of startup companies are making new plant-based substitutes for beef that look and taste more like beef than the old-style veggie burgers that have been around for a while. Gee, 
I think I saw that on a me- restaurant menu the other day. Yeah, they're starting to appear here and there. Uh, I'm glad to hear that they've started succeeding in selling this substitute beef. Um, but besides that, researchers are even trying to grow real beef muscle in a lab. This is using cell biology to grow something instead of just extracting the protein from plants. To the extent that these new ideas take off, they would eliminate a whole lot of greenhouse gases. This astonishes me. Do you actually mean that you could put together chemicals in a laboratory that would create a compound that is identical to beef that we get from a cow? Well, it's not exactly chemicals. It's more like making beef biologically. So instead of raising a whole cow, we hope to manufacture just the muscle tissue that we like to eat. Now, no one has succeeded in doing this yet, but they're working hard at it. Well, what's the connection between substituting factory beef muscle and reducing greenhouse gases? Okay, you asked, so I'm going to answer you. It's a little awkward to say, but it's really just two words, cow burp. You are kidding me. No, I'm not kidding. In our last podcast, we mentioned that methane causes even more global warming than carbon dioxide. And when cows burp a lot of methane, which happens when they eat and digest grass, this emits a lot of it into the atmosphere. Anyway, if we all switched away from conventional beef and started eating these new products, we'd have less need for cows, and that would make a real dent in climate change. Greenhouse gas emissions would be reduced, and by the way, this new form of beef might even reduce our personal cholesterol levels as well. So, would this be a problem for people employed in the cattle industry? Well, that's an understatement. It certainly would. Any adjustments in our lifestyle will always have some financial winners and losers. In fact, believe it or not, in the U.S., the cattle industry has already started lobbying the Department of Agriculture to restrict the definition of beef in order to exclude these new products. Wow. The new products must taste really good if they're that concerned. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, Maria. Besides eating less red meat, what other possibilities have you got to mitigate climate change? Here's something hopeful. Philanthropists have invested $40 million into researching how to extend the shelf life of fruits and veggies. While I think the intent was to improve nutrition, the project would also help mitigate climate change. Wait a minute. I'm confused. What does the shelf life of food have to do with climate change? So avoiding food waste would result in a significant energy savings. Let me explain this. It's, uh, follow me along. First, let's consider this consumer's experience. Whenever you take some food at room temperature and you put it in the refrigerator, energy is required to cool it down. And if the food is eventually thrown away, that energy to cool it was just wasted. Why? The refrigerator was already cool anyway. Well, not so fast. Let's say you cooked some food and there were leftovers. So typically, people first let the leftovers cool off in the kitchen until they're at about room temperature, which is 70 degrees. Then people put that in the refrigerator, which is still a full 30 degrees colder. The food then warms up the air in the refrigerator, and a lot of energy has to be used to get the refrigerator temperature 
back to what it should be and cooling that food down from 70 to 40 degrees. So there's a lot of energy embedded in bringing food to the table. It never occurred to me that I was wasting energy when I throw out leftovers. That's remarkable. Yeah, that's the point. If food is wasted, energy is wasted. So preserving the shelf life of food does in fact mitigate climate change. Gee, I never thought of it that way. And that's just the consumer end of things. So let's look from another perspective. Energy is consumed in growing the food as well. It's also used to transport food on refrigerated trucks. Energy is used in cooking food. And finally, of course, energy is wasted if you refrigerate the food at home and then wind up throwing the food away. So let me see if I understand. Lengthening shelf life so there's less waste saves energy all the way down the line. The less we have to grow, transport, and prepare, the less the impact on the environment. So it's like this is a kind of life cycle of food. Yeah, I like that expression. That's not a bad way to think of it. But I'll tell you, I would call it the energy cycle of food preparation. In the context of climate change, I like that phrase better. Let's get back to the shelf life research. Have there been research advancements in extending the shelf life of foods? Yes, there has. In some supermarkets, we are now using a coating on avocados to make them last longer. Great. I love guacamole. But seriously, I can see that extending the shelf life of fruits and veggies would be very helpful to all of us, in addition to mitigating climate change. It's really encouraging to hear that all of this vital work is going on. I wouldn't have made the connection between longer-lasting food and climate change. Keep going, Maria. Are there any other climate change mitigation technologies that you can tell us about? Sure. There are some scientists in Switzerland and Canada who are researching something called direct air capture. The idea is to develop equipment that takes carbon dioxide out of the air. Carbon dioxide is the biggest contributor to climate change by total volume because it's produced whenever anyone burns anything for energy, which we all do. For example, everyone's furnace burns some type of fuel to generate heat, and cooking is energy intensive as well. So even if your appliances are all electric, frequently fuel is burned to create electricity. And just to tell you, I say frequently because sometimes electricity is generated through nuclear or hydroelectric power rather than by burning fuel. So is this the point? We all cause carbon dioxide to be emitted in our everyday lives. So I can certainly understand that extracting it from the air would really help. That's right. Scientists are trying to capture this CO2 somehow. And of course, I assume they need to do it without consuming too much energy, right? Otherwise, there would be no point in this whole effort. <laughs> That's right. Well said. And if they succeed in this extraction, remember, we have to do something with this CO2. It's got to go somewhere. So some engineers are trying to see if we can bury it underground and determine if it will stay there. An alternate fate for this concentrated CO2 is piping it into greenhouses, where, of course, plants just love that gas. So this is the same question I've been asking all along. How far along is this technology? The technical feasibility has been proven in a lab. 
but now engineers are building larger air capture equipment to see if it can be done cost-effectively as well on a bigger scale. So, to recap, we've talked about three different topics, eating less meat, the energy life cycle of food, and direct air capture. What else have you got? Well, there are some weird ideas floating around about geospatial engineering. What on earth is geospatial engineering? Yeah, from my point of view, it's polluting the air to cool off the planet. There are really contentious discussions going on among scientists about whether we should even consider doing this. I guess even the scientists don't have all the answers. But tell me, what do you mean when you say polluting the air? Is something literally being added to the air? Good question. There are several options for geospatial engineering. The first one that I hear the most about involves putting fine particles or dust into the upper atmosphere. These particles reflect the sun's rays away from us, and of course, that cools off the Earth. Well, that's a very interesting concept, but will it work? And isn't it a bad idea to intentionally pollute the air when that can harm our lungs? Yes, it definitely is. Extensive research actually has also proven that it's bad for our hearts. But we're not sure if it's going to harm us because these particles are placed very high in the atmosphere. In any case, let's put aside health concerns for the moment and get back to the question of whether geospatial engineering will cool the planet. Watching the outcomes of volcanoes erupting gives us some idea about what happens when we put fine particles in the air. I had heard that sometime in recorded history, a great volcanic eruption darkened the skies and resulted in cooler temperatures. The blackened skies happened because sunlight wasn't getting through. And as you would expect, plants of all kinds died too, resulting in a famine. That's right, Jane. Lots of people recorded the darkened skies and the famine. But no one connected these things to a volcanic eruption until more modern times. So, I get that erupting volcanoes create air pollution. And I also understand that the history of volcanoes suggests that geospatial engineering could cool the planet. Besides volcanoes, is there any other data we have that can help us understand the efficacy of geospatial engineering? Yes, actually there is. Burning high sulfur coal is another example. But what is high sulfur coal and how is it used? Coal is a fossil fuel burned in many parts of the world to generate electricity and heat. Some coal is naturally contaminated with a high sulfur content, and the burning of coal converts that sulfur to sulfur compounds. These sulfur compounds are then released as air pollution, and the pollution particles in turn cool the planet by reflecting the sun's rays away from the earth. So that's how the burning of coal is analogous to geospatial engineering. Interestingly, Burning this coal initially confused scientists when they were trying to understand climate change in the 20th century. You see, when the Industrial Revolution started some centuries ago, the burning of coal initiated global warming because it generates carbon dioxide. But scientists did not know that sulfur pollutants in the air emissions served to reduce this warming by reflecting the sun's rays away from the Earth. So the climate didn't warm as much as scientists expected when they looked back at climate data from the Industrial Revolution. And between you and me, I think that this created confusion, which may have led 
to some climate deniers. In other words, burning high sulfur coal put both carbon dioxide and sulfur particles into the air. And here's the point. The CO2, that is carbon dioxide, caused some global warming, while at the same time, the sulfur compounds mitigated it by cooling. That's what created so much confusion in the beginning about whether the globe was actually warming up. But I'm going to tell you something, if you don't mind my going on. There's another chapter to the story of burning high sulfur coal that may be relevant to whether we attempt geospatial engineering. The sulfur compounds created by burning coal are acidic, and there was an unintended side effect. When it rains or snows, the drops of precipitation absorb these acidic particles, and then they fall to earth, and that's what we call acid rain. So burning high sulfur coal creates acid rain. Acid rain? Who would want that? I agree. Acid rain harms life on Earth, for example, killing fish in our rivers. It's a very unwelcome side effect, essentially, of burning high sulfur coal. We went on to burn high sulfur coal for a very long time, though, before anyone noticed the impact on our rivers and forests. And who knows if something similar or analogous could happen with geospatial engineering. So that's the point. Based on our experience with volcanoes and with burning high sulfur coal, we know that particles in the air could cool off the Earth. And this suggests that geospatial engineering could work to help with climate change. But as we've seen, polluting the air also may have unforeseen additional side effects. And that's why geospatial engineering is so controversial in the scientific community, and we haven't really tried it on any scale yet. Phew. That was pretty complicated stuff. Okay, Maria, let's move on. Can you share one last idea with us? I'd love to hear something really optimistic about reducing climate change. I don't blame you. I feel the same way. And here it is. There's been some recent research that shows we may be able to increase battery storage capacity by 10 to 40% by adding silicon to batteries. Silicon is cheap. It's actually just found in sand. I need some help here. What's the connection between climate change and batteries? It's simple, actually. If batteries become cheaper and they last longer, it's not merely more convenient. It also makes solar and wind power a lot more effective. That's because the battery is storing energy when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow. Very nice. I hope somebody starts building these better batteries soon. Do you have any last thoughts before we sign off? Yep, always. <laughs> None of the technological fixes we talked about today are widely commercially available yet. We don't really know if any of them will be cost-effective. Even if all of them work, it's important that we understand we still have a pretty big warming problem. So don't rely on technology to eradicate this problem. There's no substitute for trying to use less fossil fuel wherever and whenever we can. That amounts essentially to an ounce of prevention and that's always preferable because the cure is tough. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more podcasts on some new topics.